They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. I'll be swinging through New York and D.C. this coming September and October, so please reach out if you want to meet up. Email me at jorschneider at gmail.com or on WeChat at Jordan Schneider. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I write a newsletter and you should sign up to it, chinaecontalk.substack.com. In the past few weeks, I've translated articles from Chinese on what happens if the VPN dies in China, the role of operations in Chinese internet companies, and the rise of a cheese tea Starbucks slayer, chinaecontalk.substack.com. So what's holding the PRC back from technology's cutting edge? Douglas Fuller, associate professor in the Department of Asian and International Studies at City University of Hong Kong, has an idea. He's the author of Paper Tiger, Hidden Dragons, Firms in the Political Economy of China's Technological Development. This book, which dives into the Chinese semiconductor space, is an attempt to answer what it really takes for a country to develop technologically. It's built on 499 interviews. I'm really confused why he didn't just go for one more. Over 15 years. In this conversation, we'll discuss technology transfer and the trade war and lots of other interesting state-private interactions when it comes to technological development. Doug, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Before we get into our main topic, you are based out of City University in Hong Kong, and I would be remiss in uh, not asking you for your perspectives on the protests of the past few months. Right. Well, this time around, I, I've only been in Hong Kong since January, but I, I've lived here in the past. Uh, was on sabbatical here in 2011 and worked here in 2007 for the entire year. And, and what strikes me about the protests this time around is how broadly based they are. I mean, even back in 2007, my, my students then expressed a lot of dissatisfaction with the economic opportunities for lo- young people in Hong Kong. But I, what I noticed about the protests now is even friends of mine who are older, uh, wealthy, even have successful businesses in mainland China, just the type of people you would think that would be against the protesters and sort of very supportive of Carrie Lam's position are out marching. So I I think it's um, really a very broadly based movement this time um, with at least some of the demands resonating with with quite a large swath of the population. So, Doug, you describe yourself as a distressingly non-technical social scientist who is nonetheless able to write a remarkably readable political economy analysis of an industry on the cutting edge of technology. I'm curious what advice you have for other social scientists or policy experts who want to get a deeper understanding of something technical. Right. So I don't have an electrical engineering degree, um, but what I do have the opportunities I've had are to work closely with some 
electrical engineering professors at MIT, where I did my doctorate. Um, so they really helped me a lot in understanding um, not just the uh, IC, the integrated circuit industry, but the wider IT industry. But even if you don't really have close interaction with technical experts. Yeah, not all of us have um, MIT PhDs on the horizon, Doug. Come on. Right, right. I do think that just extensively interacting with people in industry and understanding, you know, how they evaluate the technologies in their field um, is is extremely helpful and and really the 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 way to go in terms of trying to analyze industries. And I would like to think, I mean, my book and my wider work is not just about the integrated circuit industry, but the wider information technology industry, at least significantly wide swath of that. How I learned about that really is just interviewing a lot of participants in the industry to understand how they viewed their their own industry. Um, so it's quite time consuming, unfortunately, but I do think those of us who have not had the benefits of an engineering education can still, through this type of process, learn a lot about a given industry and, and be able to hopefully contribute to um, policy discussions about the industry. Sure. Um, so Chinese SOEs are good at some things. They can be an effective job program, a means to inject stimulus into economy, a nice place to work if you want to have dinner with your kids. Um, but as you write, they are pretty bad at creating cutting edge technology. So why do SOEs suck at the hardest R&D? Well, I think it's not just that they're bad at creating new technologies, though that is true. I also think they are not very good at learning and absorbing existing technologies, or when they are given these technologies, really maximizing the usage of the technologies they, they acquire or, or are given. The basic reason for that is their incentive structure. I mean, these SOEs are really not commercial market facing. Um, they know that they have, you know, soft loans to support them. So they don't feel that much pressure to compete in the marketplace on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think some of them at least are still given other objectives to fulfill. You mentioned employment. Um, but even sometimes, paradoxically, the government decides that they want them to pursue some particular technology. So the SOE goes and does that, whether or not that makes sense in terms of where the market is heading technologically. I was at a recent conference and someone from the World Bank mentioned that there's a problem with a lack of market neutrality in China, meaning basically that the state often creates or distorts markets. And I, I think that's quite true. And particularly, a lot of these distorted markets are um, distorted through state procurement, which is going to these SOEs and further skews their, their incentives away from competing in the marketplace and trying to learn and innovate 
uh, in that context. So it's interesting. It, I feel like there have been a number of books recently uh, written in the U.S. context writing about just how important government spending was to technological innovation in the 20th century and that what the U.S. really needs to do nowadays is invest more into, into basic R&D and whatnot. So it seems on the face of it like this is actually what the Chinese system is, is really pursuing. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about the incentive structure, but what other critical differences are there between the sort of R&D that goes on in the U.S. that's perceived as relatively successful versus the kind of like wasteful spending that happens um, in the SOE context? Well, I mean, first of all, I think basic sort of science research, if, if that's what we mean by basic R&D, there obviously is a, a large role for the government because much of that R&D is so far from commercialization that you're not really going to have firms very interested in pursuing that R&D. And then this has been recognized you know, long ago by people like Arrow and others. And I, I would argue there probably is a trend that economies, particularly advanced economies, are getting more and more R&D intensive. And in that regard, uh, you know, forget about China, but if you look at the US versus Japan or Sweden, let's say, we're sort of falling behind. Our public spending on research is at best kind of flatlining, uh, not, not growing as, as it is vis-a-vis -vis the GDP in, in those other countries. And, and that should be a concern. But I think for China, which in many ways is still a developing country, arguably less emphasis should be put on basic fundamental science research and more of an emphasis should be pl uh, placed on absorbing technologies or innovating in sort of the commercial technology space. So adding to the technology frontier, but in less sort of basic fundamental science ways and more uh, in the competitive marketplace. And I think the problem is that China, by choosing to use state procurement, by choosing to have severe misallocation of its financial resources, where on one hand, there's a group of firms that are not only state state-owned firms, but a few other firms that are, have become so large that they're state-favored, where they basically know that they're not going to go out of business. So their incentives are skewed. And on the other hand, there's these other firms that are starved of capital. So it's not very realistic for them to uh, invest a lot in R&D, particularly in these fast-moving uh, high-tech sectors that I, I discuss in my work. And I think that is actually quite different from what happened in the U.S. It is true firms like Intel had in the early days a fair amount of government procurement, particularly from the Pentagon, uh, and that was important. But the government didn't decide, okay, you know, we're just going to keep having lots of procurement going to uh, this small set of chip firms in, in Silicon Valley and to the extent that those firms ignore the commercial marketplace. The government definitely boosted these firms by creating, you know, initial markets for this technology, but the firms were able to grow beyond that to look for non-government marketplaces. I mean, even within the U.S., you can probably draw a sharp contrast between some of the firms in the military industrial complex that basically rely very heavily on military contracts and 
those others that did initially like Intel, but have grown beyond, beyond it. And I would argue for the first group of firms, they are actually somewhat problematic in terms of, you know, are they really, is the U.S. government getting enough bang for its buck in terms of what it's spent in, in procurement on them? I, I mean, there are other issues involved here also, you know, the, the very opaque nature, frankly, of the U.S. military budget that make it even more problematic. But I would say the Chinese case is sort of, you know, this Worst case, American military industrial complex multiplied by by some large factor. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. And, and, you know, spreads out to many more sectors. I mean, if you look even at the PC market in China for a long, long time, you know, the government procurement was a huge part of that marketplace, much longer, arguably, than it should have been. And, you know, that on the one hand might have helped firms like a Lenovo initially, but it also, you know, allowed them to get too comfortable, allowed them to decide to de-emphasize R&D and really just cuddle up to the state, enjoy this state procurement. Sure. We just did an episode last week on the late stage Soviet economy in the 1980s and what Gorbachev was trying to was had to work through with these um, with these industries and lobbyists and whatnot. And ironically, you know, we were talking about how how, you know, you really have to wrap your head around a totally different system. And while China in 2019 is certainly um, is certainly no uh, Soviet Union 1984, there are still um, there are still some parallels, particularly when you start digging into the uh, the SOE sector. You have this great um you have this great uh uh anecdote where you talk about hua hong who's this uh you know chip maker and they had this big contract to um make the chip cards for beijing ids um which someone said quote aren't anything special but just a special relationship with the government um which keeps them uh, which keeps them in business that i thought was great so first uh, doug Mind giving us a, a sense of, of what semiconductor chips are and why they are uh, important and a good barometer for um, questions around technological progress? Right. Well, semiconductor chips, sort of still known often as computer chips, are the electrical components that sort of run the processes in these various you know electronics boxes or even inside other, other machinery that now has a heavy... Uh, electronic components, such as now in automobiles. So you can store information on them. They run a lot of processes now that are the, the automated processes. So they're- I just saw a $500 uh, basketball with a chip inside it that can tell you, you know, the angle of your shot, which I just thought was, was a great a great application of this technology anyways. <laughs> right. Right. So they finally made it into sporting goods. So that's sort of, I guess, the the final frontier for for chips um so they're you know almost ubiquitous now um across these many different sectors and uh, i think importantly they've been on this you know moore's law trajectory of being able to pack more and more information on a smaller and smaller uh space for the chip as the the chip costs have all have been driven down so you know we're our smartphones today are vastly more powerful than, you know, the most advanced mainframes were two generations ago or even maybe generation and a half ago. So they're sort of vital not only in the information technology space, but in a lot of 
other areas. So, okay, so chips are a big deal. Let's go back to the 1990s and 2000s with uh, the 908, 909 projects and Golden Card. What has the Chinese government saw the role of industrial policy being in uh, pushing forward this sector? I think the Chinese government often likes to take a commanding heights approach. Um, And this is even more true as there were a lot of reforms going on in the 80s and 90s to, you know, let other forms of corporate governments other than state ownership flourish. But they, they still saw for these commanding heights of industry and technology that state ownership could be valuable. So for the 908 project, which was basically for the first five uh, years of the uh, 1990s, they wanted to create their own firm that had relatively advanced fabrication, manufacturing processes for semiconductors. They sort of created this firm out of this research institute in Wuxi because that had been a major center of R&D in this sector for the Chinese state. And they engaged with foreign firms who had this fabrication technology firms such as uh, then Lucent Technologies, still had some fabrication technology and, and others. And the idea was just they would get technology transfer from the foreign firm and they would create their own successful firm, at least near the cutting edge of semiconductor technology. And fortunately for them, so the project started in 1991, um, but it took them forever to get it up and going. So by the time they actually had a fab, like a fabrication facility that could you know, do any manufacturing. It was, I think, 1998. And of course, because they, you know, came out of this state research background, they hadn't really thought ahead to what they were going to do once they got this manufacturing capabilities. So they they were faced with the problem of having this fab but not being able to fill the fab. So they then had to essentially sell this basically empty fabrication facility to one of the early hybrids, one of these firms that was Chinese based, but, you know, had strong financial links abroad and run by either returnees or ethnic Chinese from the so-called ethnic Chinese economies of Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau. Um, so before we jump into the hybrid firms, let's look at the other types of firms that you illustrated as firms that didn't necessarily help China all that much with its development. Um, so first, maybe start with the fully foreign firms that came to China. Right. Well, I mean, I argue there's sort of four categories in total. So there's the the classic multinational corporations. And, you know, developing countries around the world have always complained that multinationals don't really care about developing the capabilities of the host countries in which they're operating. And I mean, I think that is a fair criticism. The countries that have been successful have either browbeaten the multinationals into transferring technology to local firms, that would be sort of the Japanese and Korean cases, or sort of provided incentives and uh, in, induced these firms to transfer 
technology to local firms. That would be the Taiwanese case, or basically did not really build up a domestic value chain per se, but encouraged the multinationals to themselves upgrade their local capabilities. And that would be the Singaporean case. The general empirical evidence that's out there is that if you're if if your government the local host government does nothing, then the multinationals really probably won't bother too much with upgrading locally. You know, they're in business for profit, so they might upgrade because they see certain local opportunities given local human resources or other opportunities. But at best, they don't have a strong incentive to do this. And this, I think, is also understood uh, from the literature on how most multinationals are actually still quite positively biased to their home country, that they're not really multinational in character, that German multinationals typically have, you know, more of their resources, human resources, and, you know, core technology activities in Germany. American ones have more of them in America, Japanese ones in, in Japan. So, If you're just going to rely on those firms, you have to sort of have a lot of state capacity, such as in Singapore or or these other East Asian developmental estates, or it just won't work. One of the things you you talk about is the importance of of human capital and not just spending billions of dollars building these fabs. Uh, semiconductors being something where you really need like a ten year ramp up period of hard study just to kind of get to the cutting edge. So, what do the foreign companies do and don't do, and how have these different firms or these different types of firms looked at a development of of human capital? Not just in the semiconductor space, but sort of more widely, multinationals have always been a little bit wary of allowing local personnel in China to really touch core R&D activities because one, especially in the past, Chinese, uh, China's IPR environment wasn't uh, very good. Um, so they're afraid of theft. But even without the fear of outright theft, employees come and go what stays in employees' mm-hmm. heads could, you know, <laughs> leave with them when they go to a competitor. So the solution many multinationals came up with was to uh, fragment or modularize their R&D process uh, and only, you know, put uh, less critical segments in China. But I would say in the last decade or so, or even a little bit longer, this has really come back to hurt these multinationals because, you know, one of the things that motivates a lot of the technical personnel working in R&D activities is their own learning opportunities, what they can get from uh, working in a particular firm. And over time, more and more people realized that the multinationals weren't really offering the best learning environment. If you really wanted to engage in trying to do sort of architecture level R&D, where you have a sense of the overall process or product you're making. It was very hard to do that in most multinational firms. So then the multinationals began to lose out more and more to other firms operating in China because they, they were regarded as really not offering these. Sure. No, I've, I've run into this. I, I mean, there are, there are a few exceptions 
there's always going to be, you know, firms that, that buck this trend, but it's pretty clear it's become a problem for, for multinationals. So this idea of comparing, contrasting the, the kind of Asian state development that you saw in Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, versus what the Chinese state planners were doing, how did the, the Chinese miss the boat on this? Right. I mean, I, I think it's very easy for people to assume because China does have a state that is very willing and able to interfere in the economy that China is just like South Korea or Japan or, you know, the, these other countries where state intervention actually worked quite effectively. But I think there are a number of differences in the Chinese case that present pretty serious hurdles to the same sort of effective state industrial policy. And we I've already mentioned a couple of them. I mean, the misallocation of finance and it, the bias towards state-owned firms, which are the vehicles for a lot of the industrial policy, is highly problematic just because of the incentive structures that are in place. Another issue is just the information asymmetries. You know, China is huge compared to, uh, forget about Singapore or Taiwan, but even Japan, it's a much larger country. The central government often doesn't really know what is going on at the lower levels of government. And the incentives that are in place for these lower levels of government aren't necessarily about long-term developmental goals because the tenure of the you know local party secretaries isn't isn't very long. It's more about boosting investment in the short term, uh, which in an environment where you lack in, in industrial investment, it's probably a good incentive. So in the earlier years when they were doing this, probably worked to China's benefit. But over the last 15 or more years, I'd argue that this, particularly when you're trying to build firm level capabilities, is, has not been very effective. So those are the, the main issues. There's also, I think, the issue that China, just by the nature of being a sort of continental-sized economy is going to be less export oriented compared to these other other countries in their developmental heyday. So I think a very incisive argument is that it wasn't that Japanese uh, economic bureaucrats or Korean ones were much smarter than Chinese ones, but they were able to use the information gleaned from exports to decide which firms to support. But in the Chinese case, that's Arguably, the opportunity for doing that is more limited just because of the size of the economy and, you know, and the ge geographic and size of the polity. But also, they chose different mechanisms. They chose to use a lot of state procurement, and they seem not to use that very effectively to discipline. The firms that keep disappointing uh, in terms of development still tend to get contracts. You mentioned Huada is one of these firms. And they have a, the level of financial repression and sort of skewing finance to certain firms is arguably much larger than what went on even in the, the Korean case. And, you know, even in Korea in the mid 1980s, they, the, the state was able to destroy a table that they decided was not conforming to to the state's uh, developmental goals. So they were you know, able to discipline firms in a way that Chinese state planners seem to be reluctant 
to do. And I, I think that probably in, in l- large part also goes back to the information asymmetries and not really knowing how to judge these firms because it's not by based on export perf- export performance and just the yeah. sheer the, size. The book the How Asia Works does a, has a very good um, uh, whole bit on how the, the sort of export discipline was what turned on and off the uh, the financial spigots to these firms and, and was what helped the bureaucrats all across the more successful countries in, in East and Southeast Asia get their technology upgrading in order. So interestingly, you write about Huawei and Ren Zhengfei sort of realizing this on his own, that um, export discipline was the real trick to keep the company on the cutting edge. So maybe talk about them in comparison to the likes of ZTE and Lenovo? Right. So, you know, I talk about this incentive structure. You can just sell goods to the state and it's a very comfortable <laughs> way to make a living, less stressful. But Ren Zhengfei, there was a, a, a method to his madness. He decided to forego what were these, you know, rational incentive structures to just embrace state procurement and instead took a very high risk strategy of very early on, earlier than, you know, the peer competitor ZTE, looking abroad for contracts, for markets, um, because he really wanted to hone Huawei's capabilities by competing against the best. So he went to Europe quite early on as a possible market for Huawei's products. And he also showed very little interest in the various state projects that were, you know, the the various standard projects that they did, TDS, CDMA, and then, you know, the the follow-up, the the TD version of LTE that the Chinese state promoted. Rationally, you would think, hey, it's great to at least take part in these projects and try to get some more money from the state. Ren Zhengfei was a little crazy in, in just the right way. Right. So he bucked the, these, these uh, sort of irrationally bucked these incentives. By doing so, was able to hone a much more competitive firm. And obviously, I mean, other things were going inside in, in the firm. The human resource management practices of Huawei are, you know, known throughout China as being very rigorous, maybe even vicious. And that arguably helped the, the, the firm up to this time in, in, in honing its capabilities. But in contrast, a firm like ZT was more than happy to, you know, be much more reliant on the Chinese marketplace when it went abroad. It, sort of very much followed this China Development Bank subsidized loans to sell equipment in African countries where the leading foreign firms maybe were not that interested because the price points were so low. So over time, ZTE, you know, really lagged further and further behind Huawei. The problem, though, is the Chinese state in the series of, you know, large procurement tenders in the 21st century actually treated ZTE equal or better than it treated Huawei, meaning that they either got the same sort of share of the, the domestic telecom equipment pie or a larger share, which goes you know directly against what the Chinese state should have done, which would be to reward the firm that you know was a better export performer. And that was, you know, widely acknowledged, at least outside of China, as a much more 
formidable competitor than ZTE. The, the sort of irony of the Trump administration's uh, trade policies is finally they're unintentionally improving China's industrial policy because in this latest tender round, uh, Huawei got the biggest chunk. Finally, after all this time, you know, the better firm is getting a larger share. Yeah, I mean, irony is really abound here. Had um, had Chinese industrial policy been more, quote unquote, successful in bringing Huawei under the fold, um, it would not be a world, the, the sort of world beater that it is today. So now let's come to this idea of financing, which you argue plays a really big role in sort of screwing this whole thing up. Uh, You have a quote um, from 2014 uh, from someone in the Ministry of Science and Technology lamenting the fact that of all the money that was spent in that um, in that era's big industrial uh, promotion product, only 40 percent of the funds were actually spent on science and technology projects. So what was going on in the financing of all this supposed uh, industrial upgrading and uh, how did it gunk up the system? Right. Well, I mean, I I think particularly. Um, for the Ministry of Science and Technology, a lot of the rush of funding that came on the uh, with the mid and long term plan for science and technology starting in 2006, they planned to spend a lot of money, but they didn't really plan any new organizational controls to deal with this huge new gush of funding that was going to come out. I saw Vice Minister of Moss speak about this, you know, when they were announcing the plan and explaining it in 2006. And he was asked, you know, what are the structures in place to to deal with this much larger level of funding? And basically, they had put in no new structures for that. And, you know, there were other micro level issues, uh, some of which have already now been dealt with. So for a long, long time, I think until about 2015, frankly, a lot of personnel working for not only for the Ministry of Science and Technology, but other people who maybe in the university system and elsewhere who received their funding, you know, they were very poorly paid. And one of the ways they compensated is basically paying themselves, albeit it was basically illegal to do so, out of these grants. So that, that I think accounts for a large chunk of this money that, you know, the 60% that wasn't actually spent on R&D itself. I think the last 15 years or so, we've seen this time and again, that the level of funding has been so high, has been ramped up so much that organizationally, they don't really have the structures in place to make sure that the money is spent effectively. Sure. And this is something that has continued from the 2014 IC Mega Project into Made in China uh, 2025, I imagine? Yes, though, I mean, I think there are other issues, especially with the 2014 IC Mega Project, that basically I think they were hoping to buy a lot of foreign technology, but just the huge size of this plan raised the hackles of a lot of foreign governments, not just the U.S., So it's become harder and harder for them to look abroad to buy technology. And that just has forced this money to turn inward to look for opportunities in China. I would argue there aren't (laughs) that many exciting opportunities in China to spend a lot of this money. So now 
it's kind of being a fair amount of it just frittered away buying shares in firms that don't have a lot of exciting technological capabilities. And, you know, probably we're not starved of capital anyway. So there's not really a good justification for just giving them more money, except that they created this, you know, IC fund and then put even more money into it when they spent the initial one, 120 billion renminbi. So they have to, you know, spend it somehow. Uh, so let's talk now about uh, these hidden dragons you write about, hybrid firms. So what are they and why have they been more successful uh, than the uh, state-owned and state-adjacent or uh, fully multinational funds, uh, firms in China? Like, well, these hybrid firms sort of solve the two big problems facing the other firms. So the domestic firms either have too much funding from the financial system, these, these state-owned and state-favored firms, or they have too little in terms of, you know, a lot of private enterprises basically have to invest out of their own earnings. They're much less likely than to uh, invest themselves in these uh, high-risk, high-investment uh, high-tech sectors. Um, and then the multinationals just have very little commitment to China and are sort of wary of China on IPR grounds. But the, the hybrids solve these two problems. So their financing is essentially from abroad. It's not as soft as the government financing to the SOEs. There's still, you know, strings attached. They will be cut off if they don't perform. So they have incentives to hone their capabilities. But they're not like the neglected private firms in China in that they do have opportunities for external financing. So they solve this sort of domestic financial problem. But they also solve the commitment issue that other externally financed firms, i.e. the multinationals, have. And that the hybrid firms are run by people who are themselves ethnic Chinese and for either ideational reasons, you know, maybe patriotism, or they believe, whether or not it's true, they believe that they, due to their background, have a better understanding of how to operate in, in the Chinese market and, and utilize Chinese resources, particularly human resources, in competing against multinationals and uh and local firms, which of course the ideas sort of meld with the interest-driven explanation, right? That they they're only doing this because they believe they have some sort of comparative advantage in competing in this marketplace. But whatever their motivations, they, if you look at various metrics that I discuss in my book, outcompete the the other types of firm, particularly when you look at the level of R&D spending and just the, the size of each one of these sectors in terms of their the investment they get. They widely outperform in these in these high-tech sectors. Because basically most of these firms are initially venture capital invested types of firms. So they're not if you need firm capabilities that stretch across a large swath of the value chain and you need investment over decades, something like the air um creating wide-bodied airline passenger jets. You know, those aren't going to be uh, supported by VCs or even in the auto industry. This isn't a good model for these type of firms, uh, venture capital based firms. So they're not really going to be that prevalent there. 
But in these fast moving, more modularized high tech sectors is where they contribute quite a lot to China. And I mean, if, if you, you know, think of the, the famous Chinese firms in high tech, almost all of them are hybrids. So Alibaba, at least by background, Alibaba, Tencent, SMIC, DJI, a, a bunch of these firms are. But if you look at the sort of state favored firms, the, the only one that's really doing extremely well in terms of honing its technological capabilities, you, you'd have to say is So Huawei. we have 30 years of techno-nationalist policy uh, to look back for. Um, any uh, prognostications about the future prospects of uh, high-tech development more generally in China? You know, China has done some things extraordinarily well. The amount of human capital development in China has been outstanding. And, you know, the state has played a very significant role in that. So it's not that the state has done everything wrong by, by any means. That will stand them in very good stead. And the other thing that will work in China's favor is just that they have developed this large industrial market. Many of the things they use to develop that market in terms of investment, intensive economic growth may be working now against them in terms of creating economic problems with a lot of leverage, but they at least created large and increasingly sophisticated demand domestically. And so th those are really, you know, strong, strong factors that will propel China. But on the other hand, there are a lot of reasons to be worried. They really haven't, under the current regime, resolved this problem of financial misallocation. And the government seems trapped in how to deleverage because they don't want short-term growth to dip too low. But at least some people within this leadership seem also to recognize that investment-driven growth it's just going to lead to uh, higher leverage, more debt. So they're really in quite of a political conundrum here, how to move towards a more uh, consumption-based economy, less investment-driven, without in the short term creating a lot of, uh, frankly, political unrest because of you know, the structural changes that will entail. So Doug, given that context, what do you think uh, U.S. policy aims should be with regards to Chinese industrial policy? I mean, I, I do understand the concerns about IP theft, particularly uh, at the very least on the margins of sort of state-sponsored IP theft. I, I, I do understand concerns about that. And those aren't just U.S. concerns. It's just the U.S. has been the most aggressive about pushing back on, on those. And also, to some extent, concerned with how China's investment binges have sort of wrecked certain markets that have encouraged massive overcapacity in certain areas. And now the U.S. is sort of extrapolating forward. Well, what if they do this in you know, memory chips or other semiconductor products? Uh, those two areas are of high concern, particularly when when thinking about, well, are these sort of natural outcomes or not? And I would say the investment binges and 
just the level of subsidization of a lot of industrial investment in China. Obviously, this didn't just happen because the, the market dictated it. So the wealthy economies out there, you know, worried about uh, this leading to hollowing out or further hollowing out uh, of their economies. However, I, I would have to say it doesn't seem that there really is a coherent plan here. I mean, after all, it's Donald Trump who doesn't seem to really listen to any one of the factions within his administration and follow through on their particular policies. So I don't really anticipate that the current American administration will be able to actually foster a lot of change in a productive and relatively less costly. From from reading your book, my sense was was actually that um, you know if I was a policymaker concerned with competing at the technological edge with China, which seems to be more important than these like you know one off IP thefts that don't actually go anywhere because the companies don't really know what to do with them, I would leave uh, leave what's broken alone and not necessarily you know give this pressure on the trade war that may uh, force the, the the Chinese system to to figure out and and to kind of really work on the problems like financing and whatnot that have been sort of intractable um, without a potential foreign push to get the house in order. I am somewhat sympathetic to that argument. I guess I am also cognizant of the fact that there are those who would argue that, yes, it is true that ultimately, you know, a lot of these Chinese firms will fail, but in the meantime, they may wreck the market. So, you know, it's possible that foreign firms are going to lead to a lot of new solar technologies that were going to eventually become mass produced and lead to even greater benefits, not only for the countries that they're from, but for, you know, humanity generally. But China's investment in sort of the, you know, current mature solar technology just wrecked uh, any prospects for, for yeah. doing that going forward. And even though a lot of those firms have subsequently failed and from an economic point of view, it might have not really worked that well for China. It also arguably still damaged <laughs> a large swath of that industry outside of, of China. So one has to take that into consideration. I mean, I for specific areas, I think it's less of a concern. I, I just don't see the spending on memory chips, which is one area of salience in these discussions of China in the future, trashing world markets. It doesn't seem like they're actually going to invest enough, given what looks like more and more demand for these chips anyway, worldwide, that they're going to really crash that market. But overall, it, it is there, there are these concerns. And with IP, on the one hand, yes, I would argue it's almost staggering how little absorption there has Seriously. been for some of these companies in China. But, you know, the exceptional cases then still are problematic, that at least they're able to absorb technology that 
they acquired under dubious circumstances and and have sure it's funny you have this you have this whole bit about lenovo buying companies outright not stealing their ip but even then um even with the employees sitting under you in the organizational chart like still finding a way to to screw this thing up so you know ip stealing doesn't just um end with you know getting the files off whatever you know senior engineers computer there actually there also needs to be this sort of infrastructure and functionality and employees of of uh, behind it to realize this stuff, which um, you've shown in your book time and again, isn't necessarily there for the vast majority of these Chinese firms. Overall, the capabilities are for absorption are you know slowly rising in China. So this issue probably will have uh, more and more salience. Um, and then there are ways that in you know China is just sort of the poster child for larger international economic problems of of global imbalances for which. China alone isn't to blame. So, you know, that for those who believe that the US dollar being the prime reserve currency is actually a quite bad thing for the US and for US capital markets being sort of capital markets for the world is also bad for the US. Those are issues that need to be dealt with, not only with China, but with other trading partners. It's not China specific problem. And the new bill by, I believe by the senator from Wisconsin, Tammy Baldwin, and a Republican member of the House whose name I'm blanking on, you know, wants sort of the Federal Reserve to address those issues. Their bill clearly is not a China-specific bill. It's a bill about these global imbalances. And I think that in many ways is a smarter way to deal with this larger, larger issue rather than just focusing on China and focusing on arguably what aren't really uh, important, i.e. bilateral Uh, Doug, sort of neither here nor there, but any thoughts on AI chips? I think thus far, there's been a lot of hype about these chips in China. Maybe last year and the year before, there was sort of a boomlet in investment in AI chip startups or startups that were claiming they were going to do AI chips. Um, Fortunately, I think that has sort of simmered down in in the last six months or so because i don't think for what will probably be the largest ai chip market these inference chips that you know use ai logarithms in real world predictive applications um that china is anywhere close to the cutting edge maybe on the training chips that use massive data to sort of train algorithms in that area perhaps China will do better. But, you know, I think this is one area where actually U.S. government policy has still done pretty well. That neurocomputing from the initiative run out of the NIH, and if you're looking elsewhere for the human brain project in the EU, they don't really have a good peer competitor in China right now. And even earlier programs like DARPA's uh, Synapse program in 2008, the output of that was a neomorphic chip that nowadays you you would have to say for neomorphic computing, IBM, Qualcomm, and Intel are still far ahead of their, their Chinese competitors. Maybe for very specific applications and for the inference side, 
it's probably going to be a very fragmented market. There might be uh, one or two of these startups that will succeed. But overall, I think there's way, way too much hype about about the startups. Uh, so, Doug, final question. And um, f- feel free to ask me to rephrase it. I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to get at here. But, uh, you know, you've spent a ton of your time researching and exploring the, the Chinese uh chip and high technology industry. Do you think it's like a general global good for um, more and more Chinese firms to be at this cutting edge? Or would you prefer to see a world in which American and and Western European firms uh, still had dominance in these uh, these sorts of fields? I think it it may be very sector specific, but in a lot of these fast-paced, technology-intensive domains, I do not see it as winner-take-all. Although I really hate the phrase win-win and particularly as I think one Japanese diplomat in Europe put it when the Chinese say win-win they mean China wins (laughs) twice I do think that for a lot of these fragmented or modulized value chains in these fast-paced high-tech sectors there can be a lot of winners along uh, the value chain so it should not be viewed solely as you know Huawei wins we lose dynamic. I mean, they're, you know, Huawei does make it hard to defend them in terms of, uh, you know, they're in many ways such an impressive technology firm, but that also begs the question of, well, why are you continuing to, you know, engage in kind of dubious practices in terms of IP, given that you're already pretty impressive and creating it internally? So for th- these type of sectors, I really think it's a little bit dangerous to uh, say, you know, we want to prevent the rise of Chinese firms so that and, you know, in many ways will backfire on the U.S. If you're thinking about programs such as the entity list, which if enforced in a very rigorous manner would be long term a disaster for American firms. And, you know, there's areas where we still have a lot of dominance that it will take so much time and effort that it might be easier just to allow continued dominance on the part of our, you know, peer competitors, unless we force the issue by saying, you know, we're going to completely cut you off from our technology. I would say, you know, across the entire industrial landscape, I'm sure there's areas where it's not this interdependent uh, win-win situation. And there we might be concerned, but we we have to treat this issue very carefully and not, it seems to be the con- current assumption is any Chinese firm does well, and that's a loss for the US or loss for Japan or Europe. And that I think is a, a dangerous assumption to make. Doug Fuller, the Bill Simmons of Chinese political economy research. Thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Deck,
下的障碍。一晃来晃去怎么办？你选择头疼，这里好星星，这台星又满，绿网的星星，耀眼的星星，时尚的精英，搭配什么看我的心情？你可以亲吻我的。